Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to Justice with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this series of Justice, we will explore the experiences of mothers in the justice system, from women who enter prison pregnant and give birth inside, to those who are separated from their children for imprisonment and involvement from social services. Each episode, I'll be speaking to expert guests and exploring what needs to change. In this episode, I speak to Becky Ray and Katia Parent, social workers who are part of the pilot project run by the Prison Advice and Care Trust that sees social workers being based inside women's prisons for the first time. Hi, my name's Becky. I am a social worker based at HMP Eastwood Park, which is in the southwest of England. Eastwood Park is a remand and sentenced prison, so we have quite a big population and it's very transient. We also have a mother and baby unit. And I'm Katia, and I'm a social worker at HMP Send, which is in Surrey, kind of South London way. Um, and we have a much smaller prison, about, I think we're at 170 women right now, which is very different. And we don't hold anyone on remand, so longer se- sentences, life sentences, uh, people who have been there for quite some time. So very different between me and Becky. Okay, and Becky, how many did you say roughly in the prison that you work in? It's about Three, three fifty. Okay. So yeah, much, much bigger. Okay. And there's mother and baby units in both prisons. Not in no? mine, no. Okay, but there is at mine. So could you explain to me exactly what the role is of a social worker in a prison? Because we've had many discussions with different people who work with mothers and babies and the perinatal and afterwards. Um, you know, there's so many different areas and different sort of members of staff, as it were. So so can you explain to me what a social worker does? in a prison? Bit of a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Probably depends on the day and what's going on. But. We're kind of making it up as we go, aren't we? Because we're working on this pilot project. So there's only the two of us who are social workers in prison. Um, so our main goal is to work with mothers who um, have their children usually involved with social services out in the community. So it's kind of bridging the gap between community social services and the prison. Yeah, and I think it's, it's sometimes that involves promoting contact um, and challenging local authority decision making um, where we sort of feel that that reflects the best interests of the child. But sometimes it means explaining to mum who's in custody or supporting her through the process of understanding why she's perhaps not going to be able to parent in the way that she wants to and helping her to understand the decisions that have been made by social services by family courts and sort of giving her that social work lens so that she can understand that. What age do you start sort of working? I mean, the age of the child or the baby? Is it sort of from any age? Yeah, so it'd be birth to 18. Okay. 
I know I've worked with a few women who their kids are young adults now or have um, disabilities and are 19, 20 and still need a bit of support. So I think we're quite flexible around that. We support a a large range. Again, that sort of comes with the pilot. I suppose mm-hmm. we do have that flexibility at the yeah. moment to to pursue where we perceive areas of need. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with Eastwood Park as well, there is an element of, I mean, I'm sure it would be the same with you in unborn cases as well, but particularly because we have the mother and baby unit, um, there's perhaps more options for us to explore in terms of what happens if mum is pregnant and is going to be giving birth in custody. Okay. Sen won't have anyone that's pregnant um, as a general rule um, because Bronzefield is so close by so they tend to go there instead okay so for us I mean it, it would probably be yeah zero, zero to 18 okay so so in send then if there's no sort of pregnant women or they get sort of moved um what is your sort of usual day-to-day sort of caseload because I presume the women that are there their children have either been removed off them into care and they're trying to maybe think about getting them back if they're going to be released soon. Yeah. Or the child might be with a family member. Yeah. I work with a family engagement worker who takes on the cases of um, when they're with family. So I'm only involved with the ones that have social services involved. So that can look like um, children who are in foster care, long-term foster care, um, in the process of being adopted um, under an an SGO, so special guardianship order. Um, A lot of women who are going through court to find the right order for the children when social services are trying to remove them. So a day-to-day, what does a day-to-day look like? (laughs) A lot of meetings with the girls and trying to find out where they're at, what kind of contact they have with their kids and what they want, ideally, um, and looking if that's possible. So I reach out to social services on the outside to find out why they're involved with the children, what led to social services being there, um, and trying to put that together with the offence of that woman and seeing what is right. in the best interest of the children. Okay. Because, of course, you will have cases, I imagine, where it is appropriate that the separation remains for the safety of the child, perhaps, and then other times when it doesn't probably make any sense at all, right? Exactly. I think between Becky and I, we do have quite a few women where contact is not appropriate and it's kind of our job to speak to these women and explain um, the reality of that and try to get them to come to terms with the the grief of losing the children and how they can still they can still remain mothers despite not having contact with their children. Right. Or the level of contact that they want to have so there's a huge Mm. spectrum of what contact looks like and you know, the vast majority of mothers would be wanting face-to-face, you know, quality, meaningful contact with their children, and that's not always going to happen. So if, for example, it's felt best that the child not have face-to-face contact, but they perhaps can exchange letters or cards or speak on the phone, then it's sort of trying to help mum, I suppose, to make those things as meaningful as possible Mm -hmm. and, and accept that that's where things are at at the moment. Okay. And then I guess it's up to the child, is it when they reach 18, if yes. they want to establish contact then as or, an adult? Or earlier, potentially, yes. Oh, really? So, yeah, social services will, if the situation arises, where, for example, the child is, let's say, 14, 15, and is saying, I want to have more contact with my mum, then social services, if, if they're involved, would would consider that. They would, again, there would need to be a risk assessment. There okay. would need to be analysis of that situation. But obviously a 15-year-old child is is very much a part of their care. Yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah, so their voice is important. Right. I think that's the beauty of our job, too, is because we facilitate those conversations between mom and social services. We tend to find out what the child thinks and what they've shared with their social worker. So the social worker might come to us and say, you know what, this child is thinking about potentially having contact can we explore what that would look like um contact can be again letters or phone calls or just sharing pictures um so we have those conversations with social services to find out where the child is at and then we relay that back to mom and prepare her for whatever outcome that might be either it's a positive one or a negative one Mm. and what i mean i know again there's going to be no one answer to this but um the sort of um i suppose the emotional stage the women are at when they're sort of talking about these things do you find because having worked with women in prison for you know a long time in my life I know that a lot of people can be resigned and quite numb and seem quite sort of cut off or you have the sort of the opposite end of the spectrum where do you generally find women are in ways we experience a bit of difference I think because of our populations yes so because Eastwood Park accepts women on remand we will have women come in right off the street mm-hmm. um whereas that's no, not so much the case in Katia's prison because the women that come to her have already been on remand and been sentenced yes they're a bit more stable in a sense perhaps yeah not maybe emotionally stable but their, no, their situation their is more yeah. stable than yeah. yes. so they will have gone through court a lot of the women that come to us on remand or on a recall there's a lot of uncertainty there's a lot of instability they don't know perhaps where their children are there are lots of points of crisis for them at that moment in time and that tends to reflect in their behavior um others not so much um but we do see that i think i probably see that a lot more than you do that's one of the big differences i think between our populations and because of that it means that i can have as i said at the start a much more transient population so i might have women come in who are only going to be with us for four weeks three weeks two weeks they're still in that crisis it doesn't matter that they're only going to be here for 21 days 28 days they still feel that that desperate need for support mm-hmm. and for help and for some sort of clarity and at that point we're just really trying to work out what's the most meaningful and impactful thing that we can do with this really little amount of time and in a way that time is even more urgent isn't it where they only have such a yeah. short amount of time but that can be like catastrophic on a family unit so it's even more important to get those the support and the connections in place and maintain the bond if they're going to be in prison for two, three, four months. Whereas when they come to me, they might have four, five, ten years to do. So they're in a very different emotional state. And again, that state, uh, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It depends. You know, life is not linear and it could be that things are stable and really consistent and uh, everyone's happy with the arrangement that's in place for two, three years and then suddenly something happens and those things change. The child decides they don't want contact. Mum perhaps moves to another prison and then suddenly contact isn't as easy to facilitate and things have to be reviewed. Um, A child's placement breaks down and, and all of a sudden we're thrown back into distress and uncertainty. I've certainly heard stories from women and this shouldn't be the case, but of course, lots of things happen that sort of shouldn't happen. And this lady told me she had four children removed off her when she went to prison for a first-time offence, non-violent, um, uh, abusive, coercive, coercive husband, you know, sort of usual story, sadly. Um, and then she was told her children were, were going to be adopted when she was in prison, adopted away from her. 
Um, she was serving, she would have been out after about a year. Um, so of course that should not have been the case. Um, but that's what they said to her. And they also said to her when she got to prison, she had four children. They said, you can have one phone call. So she had to choose which child she had to call. Um, you know, and the story goes on and it's horrific. And I wondered how much you hear that, um, or whether that is actually quite rare in the grand scheme of things, even though we know these things do go on. I think they are rare in my prison because the kids who are being adopted, their moms are you serving life or are going to be there for a long time. But usually when it's a shorter sentence, it's very difficult for social services to adopt children. Um, I'm going through a process right now with one of my mums who gave birth in prison and the child is coming up to two and the adoption is still not complete and she will be in prison for life. So adoptions tend to take a very long time in court. So it's very difficult for social services to get that. But it, it could very well be that when they start off, they say, well, we're going to do that because you've got a prison sentence. So let's just go to that. It might change over the course of the next few months or years. Obviously, we can only really speak for the prisons that we work in. It's a tricky situation because obviously, if children are really young, then cases are typically twin-tracked anyway. Adoption will always be considered as, think of it like a plan B. Um, so they might be exploring options for the child to stay within the family, um, et cetera, et cetera. But they will also be looking at twin-tracking uh, an adoption alongside that as an alternative okay. to make sure that the child you know, the child something. is cared for, yeah. yeah, and there is going to be some permanence for this child. Without obviously knowing too much details, it, it could be that that was what happened. They twin track, there wasn't any alternative options. There's there's so right. much complexity, and I think it's difficult, and this is part of why our work is so important, because a lot of the time when I speak to mums about their cases, the they don't recall all of the details. Um, the details that they do recall are not necessarily what I as a social worker, as a professional would consider a key detail. It's what they as mum in her emotional state remembers. And so when they tell me these stories, whilst I have so much sympathy and compassion, and it sounds like a horrific experience, and I'm I'm with them in that, and I can see that in their faces. It's it's difficult to 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 take that as being the complete narrative, which is why we then go to social services, mm -hmm. we contact family courts, and we we get all of that information to really understand why these decisions were made. Yeah. There is a legal framework yeah. that is being complied with. And somewhere. I guess there's so much interpreting that has to go Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Because even me, who sort of worked in it for years, always learning from people like you and sort of going, oh, God, yeah, there's that other bit I hadn't quite thought about and that other bit. And and I think so much of the time is just sort of trying to understand the process, isn't it? And, and as you say, if someone's in an emotional state, you're not going to, you know, if you're ha looking at having your children removed off you, I mean, they can't be, be expected for yeah. you to understand what's happening. And that's where we come in is we're able to dig with social services. Well, why was this said to mom or what was said to mom? Why are the kids removed? What's the what's what happened before her prison sentence? So we actually get to understand why things are yeah. where they are and how we can sometimes challenge those decisions or try to change things. Yeah, it's not to invalidate a mother's experience of mm -hmm. what happened. It's to it's to give clarity. Yeah. Um We'll often say to people when they say, you know, what's the, what do you spend most of the, like, most of your time doing? What's the biggest part of your job? And I will usually say to people, I feel like an interpreter and a translator most of the time. <laughs> I'm getting information, like I said, from the local authority, from the courts, and and relaying that back to mum, reading through orders and statements, and uh, explaining to her in. Uh, non-professional non jargon right? exactly, yeah. yeah what it is that this is saying what people are saying why they're saying it um 
you know where this is coming from, what the and the where motives they stand and all that, too. yeah, and what mm. that means for them, yeah. and and, and with I, that comes comes empowerment, like knowledge is power, like if they totally, understand what's yeah. happening, and also I guess it's that awful thing of if you do have to deliver the worst news, mm. which is your children will be adopted, but I'm afraid this is the end of the line. I mean, obviously, completely horrific, but sometimes knowing and then being able to grieve and deal with that is really important as opposed to just not knowing for ages and having that sort of hanging over you. I mean, both would be awful, let's be honest. Absolutely. And do you have to deliver that news? That's what interests you. This is what I say all the time is that at the end of the day, these people did something wrong, but they're not bad people and they still deserve our honesty and they deserve us to just say it how it is. Mm -hmm. And just explaining... You know, this is your situation and unfortunately this is what's going to need to happen. But I will support you through that. And here are other things that we can look at. You might not have the contact that you want with your children. Your children might not want to see you because things you may have done to them. But you deserve to know that. And the only way that this person can move on and grieve and get the emotional support that they need and get the counseling is by getting the truth and actually knowing where they stand. So I think a lot of social services in the community will be afraid to have those conversations with these women. They're afraid of what it's going to mean, what the impact is going to be, how emotionally distraught they'll be after. And, you know, this whole prison is a different universe that they don't understand. So we actually get to build relationship with these women and explain this is what, this is where things are. It's not good, but let's use it and, and get to a better place. Yeah. So we work for, we work for a charity, work for the Prison Advice and Care Trust. And I think that with that, um, comes a level of independence. So when we when we approach women, when we're building relationships with women, there isn't the the threat of the local authority. It's a bit of a challenge for them to wrap their heads around the fact that we are social workers, and a lot of the time that comes with negative thoughts, yeah, and stigma, um, yeah, and a lot of stigma, a lot of a lot of assumptions, fear. and social and fear. Absolutely, yeah. A, a lot of these women either have had experiences of social services in their own childhoods, um, or perhaps with children previously, if not currently, um, and so there's a challenge there, but. But there is also that assumption that social workers are in the local authority and and we are not. So um, we almost come in as someone who who knows the system, who knows these processes, um, who knows the legal frameworks that are being worked within, but is there to support them and is there to use that information, not to get them what they want, but is there to, to use that information to help them and to guide them through a really, really difficult time. Okay. And is that different to your traditional social worker? Mm. <laughs> right. And can you explain that difference? So Becky and I have both worked for a council before. Okay. Um, so we know where things, how things work when you're in the council. Um, you know, you have 24 hours to write your note. You have 10 days to see them. You have to do that. And the information you get when you're talking to families is... Well, it's called investigation, isn't it? You're getting information to protect the children, which is crucial work. It's necessary. But when you're looking at the prisoners, they just need the support to understand why social services are doing things a certain way. So we kind of come in in a bit of a neutral place where we explain how things work on the outside, but we're there to support them and looking at the best interests of the child at the end of the day. So we can explain that to both parties, to both social services in the community and the prison, and be that more of a supportive um, person for them. Was the training through your organisation that you work with now that takes you from being the traditional social worker to this sort of more 
I don't want to say more compassionate, but the more kind of the work is more creative. For the woman, yeah, the work is a lot more creative and, yeah. and flexible. I think part of that comes from working in a pilot, even just things like being here. Yeah, um, right. I would never have done this as a local authority social yeah. worker. Um, and if I had, it would have probably gone through yeah, a lot of channels. To get yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So there's a lot more freedom in that sense. And it just means that we're able to really look at each each case, each woman, and sort of find... This goes back to the question that you asked us at the start, what what does a social worker do? I also think social workers are often gap fillers. Mm. Um, yeah, we find the areas that other people yeah. aren't and we we sort of slot ourselves in there. I think to simplify it, we kind of pick up where there's a gap and we're the middleman between the prison and the community social workers, aren't we? We, yeah. we do what isn't done for them we support the women who don't have social services supporting them because social services on the outside are helping the kids and are there for the kids but that leaves mom in the dark and yeah. we kind of pick that up a little bit so how many women do you work with Katia on my caseload I think I have about 20 or 25 okay and you Becky I have I think high 20s at the moment okay so yeah is that usually an average caseload yeah yeah, ideally it would be a little bit lower. <laughs> right, okay. Um, the vision for the project was small caseloads, um, which would give us scope for really intensive working. But that's not always how things work in practice. Um, when you go, I mean, for me, going into Eastwood Park and there being tens and tens and tens and tens and tens of women who are... Uh, eligible, I suppose, for for my service, who would meet the criteria for my service, as opposed to a different part of the family service in our prison. Um, it's really hard Where do you to, the line? to say no, can't right now. Um, or especially if they are, if there's urgent things happening, things with time scales, court proceedings, um, meetings that they really need to be a part of. It's hard to yeah to kind of keep those people on a waiting list. So I yeah. do find that I will pick them up. The need does change though. If you look at the you know I might say I have twenty five, but I'm only actively right now working with ten because the rest are things are going well and nothing's happening. Right. And the other ones are in court or they're going through a big um, you know there's reviews and conferences with the local authority. So it kind of it, it changes a lot. And I think with my population, I have quite a few lifers on my caseload that don't need intensive support on a weekly basis but they know that they can always turn to me and come and see me when there's something that happens so I won't necessarily close a case because nothing's happening um it'll kind of remain there and when I walk on the wing she can stop me and come and see me um if she just wants to chat that she doesn't feel like is you know about something specific we can just have a chat and be there for her if she's struggling a little bit. Yeah. And then obviously the sort of cutoff legally is 18. But how does that work in practice? Is it like you've turned 18 now, bang, we can't really do anything more? Or is it until the day before their 19th birthday? So this is the beauty of us not working for the local authority. We don't have to follow that specific rule of you're 18 now, you don't sit under our service anymore. Um, I'm supporting a, a mum who... Um, has a 20-year-old son. She lost contact for about 13 years and is now has regained contact through um, me reaching out to social services. So I'm not going to stop supporting her because yeah. that's still her child. Yeah, and she's still a mom who has a child. Exactly. And it's sort of- there are some departments within social services that are a little bit more transitional. Yeah. Um, so they, they will provide support to children as they transition into adulthood, be that through things like personal advisors mm-hmm. or um, if they're leaving care. 
they do have access to additional support through the local authority. But with our work, I think it really is just, like I said, that lack of that lack of a criteria at all, um, really. And we're just able to do what works what works best for an individual an individual family. So I'm working. Yeah, I'm working yeah. case at the moment where. Um, there's five children. The oldest child is due to turn 18 this summer. And that's causing mum quite a lot of anxiety. She's serving a life sentence. Uh, it's causing her quite a lot of anxiety because it's her first child to become an adult. And what does that mean? Right. Um, and are they all in foster care or are they? No, uh, none of them are. They're all, they're all with different family members. Okay. But yeah, they are all still in the family, but there is social services involvement. And yes, yeah, so there's a lot of anxiety around, you know, what's what will happen for this child? What will, what will that look like? What will social services involvement look like? And social services have, have worked with this child for a very, very, very long time. And they've made it quite clear that they will not just be closing the case when he turns 18. Like There will be continued involvement. And that's something that we've been able to reassure mum about through working together. What's that going to look like? What's support going to look like for, for this child as he becomes an adult? And, and how can that information provide mum with some comfort and some sense of control over what's happening as yeah. well? And out of interest, obviously not naming names, but it's interesting, I think, talking about real life women and experiences. Yeah. So with those five children, they all come and visit her? Or just some? It's a combination. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a complete combination. Some, and I suppose it's difficult do. with the sort of the geography of where people live and yeah. maybe where she is. And we know that women get held so yeah. far yeah. away from home often. And and the other elements, which I learned about sort of in the last few years, which um, I suppose I should... I, I was pretty shocked and surprised that when a child gets removed from a mother in a family court, there is um, economic support and finances that go with that child to make sure they're yep. okay. But yep. when a child is removed from a mother in a criminal court, no money goes with them. So mm. if a grandma says, okay, I'll take your two boys, um, I have room, she doesn't get any money yeah. to look after those boys. Yeah. And she might not work yeah. if she's grandma, mm. or she might work, but then how does she look after? No, she can't. It's staggering. It was Shona Minson's um, research that uh, I learned that through. Mm. Unfortunately, she might get support if it gets to a point that's so bad that she needs social services to become involved, and then they might support financially, but then that's putting that child at risk. So why aren't we doing that straight from the beginning? Yeah, mm. exactly. So tell me about the pilot and sort of how long that's running for and um, what's hoping to be achieved through oh it. And, and is it just you two or are there more people involved? It's just the two of us. Right. Three we have managers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but there's just us two in prisons. Um, it's a three-year project, which is ending in December of this year, of 2023. Um and the goal, the dream. ideally the dream, the, ma the magic wand <laughs> yeah. is um, for the MOJ to give us money. To carry on doing the work that you're doing. And to put social to workers in all of the women's prisons because the women do need it. They're One social worker in each prison. I mean, obviously, that would be a good start. I mean, that would be a great more start. would be great, but let's yeah. and start it, small. Exactly. Yeah. And obviously, as we said, we're only in two prisons at the moment, so it's really difficult for us to make any comment on the scope you know, the landscape, the demographic of other prisons. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that would be the conversation that we'd like to open is is having a social worker in every women's prison. Mm -hmm. And then, I suppose, like you said, working up from there. If you look at both of our prisons, with the amount of people that are in there and the, the remand, the lifers and all of that, I could use just the one social worker and Becky, you could use more, I right? Could. I think based on the women's prison, every prison will have different needs 
Do they have a mother baby unit? Do they have, you know, so it's all very dependent. Um, mm. Yeah, depending on that. I think that's something that we've really observed, haven't we, as the mm-hmm. pilot's gone on, is if if this if this were to be rolled out, each each job in each different prison could look very, very different, different in terms of, like you said, the facilities at each prison, the demographic, the geographical location that it covers, all of those things, really. So how will you prove your case at the end well, of... Well, we're working oh. with Cardiff <laughs> University right now, aren't we? Yeah. Um, they're doing an evaluation on so our project. So we've had that evaluation since the start of the pilot, mm-hmm. um, which is really geared towards proving, do you know what I mean, Pro- proving ourselves, proving the worth of the of the project of having social workers in prison, um, which is, it's not, it's not easy. It's not a system that was designed for social workers. It's not a business, is it, where we have to put down numbers and stuff. When you talk about real-life people, it's very hard to prove where the money is going. Also, it's. I was having this conversation with a police officer the other day. You can't prove what you've prevented. Yeah. yeah. And all of us who work in the prevention space, which is so many of us, mm. it's, it's impossible. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the quantitative data and the stats. Fine if you can get them, and that's what most people want. But then the qualitative data, people can tend to be a bit sniffy about. But quite frankly, that's really important data too. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's very difficult to get all that down when you're actually doing the job and having to, yeah. you know, get it all done. If we looked at what five, ten years down the road and seeing the impact that our work has had on the children that we were supporting, then that might be completely different. But unfortunately, we don't have that time. We can't do that. Um But yeah, if you think about the amount of children that we've supported over the last just the two years of us being in prison and how they are having contact with their their moms and their family unit is is better than ever. And they can go to school and say, yeah, my mom's in prison and that's fine because I see her and I I speak to her and they don't get bullied. If you look at those things, that's where we see that there is such an an impact. Or like I said, the alternative being where we've been able to, to help and contribute towards a sense of closure mm-hmm. um, or even just uh, like a little a little semicolon do you know what I mean where we can pause and we can say okay we can we can leave this in a place now we've done all of this work we've shared all this information um, you know we've supported each other to understand both sides of, of the situation and and we can break now or we can we can close this chapter and maybe revisit move it on. later down the line or, mm-hmm. or or move on in what in whatever way that looks like. I mean we're big parts of adoption proceedings at times. Um, we facilitate final contacts, we supervise contacts. But sometimes they said a big part of that is helping mum after that's happened. And they said there's, you know, there's other services that are out there that can do that, but bringing that into a prison is difficult. Yeah. It's difficult to bring community services in. Yeah. Yeah. Not impossible, I always think. Because I'm old enough to remember 20 years ago when there used to be way more uh, sort of third sector organisations and community services that did, you know, just in Brixton Prison, there used to be a huge amount going on there. So it's sort of possible, obviously made more difficult by the fact we've got a recruitment and retention crisis going on in the prisons as well. And I do think as well, generally, it is a population that I think that I do, I do think is often missed and not and not talked about. I mean, I yeah. think in, there's been a few cases that I've worked with social services where, and, you know, this isn't about, you know, social services are, are this or that. I've worked with some absolutely fantastic social workers in some cases mm-hmm. where we've been able to work together to produce some incredible outcomes for children and families. 
But we've also worked cases where there's been a lot of challenge and difficulty. And I do think that I've had some really honest and open conversations with social workers in the local authority who have said to me, I don't work cases like this often. I'm not sure like the best way to approach this. I'm not sure how to involve mum, even if I could, like what would that look like? And sometimes the perception is that when, when someone is in custody, their risk becomes static. They're not out in the community. They're not around the child consistently there's no concerns about them coming and trying to pick the child up from school or turning up at the house that they're staying at or and so sometimes they're not included as a positive factor but they're also not perceived as an entirely negative factor at that point because the risk that they present to the child is diminished by them being in custody what you've just said has made me remember um I had a social worker come into the prison to meet one of the prisoners, and when she left, she said, I didn't expect her to be like that. She was quite lovely. And I just mm. thought, well, what did you expect? That she'd mm. be some feral, angry person just because of the offence that she now has on her forehead. But that is what mm. people do, don't they? Yeah. They yeah. make judgment yeah. based on that. I think there's a, a part of it that's that's slightly true because if I look at just my experience in the near decade of working for the local authority before this job... I worked with one prisoner. So they don't see that a lot. And you yeah. don't know how the prison works and you don't know how what a prisoner is. Yeah, so and you why? sort of forget that actually that prisoner that they're now labelled was just a member of the community before. Yeah. And yeah. they don't undergo this weird transition when they go through the gate of turning into a three-headed sort of monster, do they? Yeah. But of course, we can be led to believe yeah. sometimes that that is the case. Yeah. I always like to remind myself that like all of us here around the table are one decision away from being in prison. Totally. And and unfortunately, that's just what happens to regular normal people and other branded prisoners. And they lose everything just because of that. And yeah. that's it. We talk about this a lot in, in in social work about like reflective practice. You know, it's a huge part of what we do, you know, mm-hmm. critical reflection um, and really sort of thinking when you're in these different situations, when you're working these different cases, whatever it may be, it's, it's thinking about your your unconscious bias and your prejudices and your assumptions. We all have them. We all have no them. No one's yeah. immune from them. <laughs> yeah. um, we all have them and you're only human, to, but it's, it's acknowledging them and it's recognising them. Because if you're not recognising them, then you can't prevent them from impacting your work. Um, and we are all human, but we are professionals. <laughs> yeah. You can go home and think what you want, but when you're at work, you got to do the best thing for these people. That's exactly, just and things, what you sign up to. Yeah, and that it's really important that that isn't clouded by your own personal judgments yeah. or what you read on social media or in the newspaper. It needs to be really, really thoroughly looked at and weighed up and, like I said, not rooted in this idea that people turn into three-headed yeah. whatever. <laughs> Absolutely. And then when we also, you know, I always talk about sort of a harmonious prison, so reducing also the levels of self-harm and the violence and the potential suicides, and which obviously impacts the staff so much. You know, I imagine the job that you do goes a long way to preventing women from getting to that place where they feel so helpless and they're so in the unknown. They're not getting answers from people and you're helping them to navigate that. And actually, I think from the experiences I've had of working in um, different prisons is that uh, the more troublesome prisons were the ones where there was no communication mm-hmm. and the women knew nothing. And they kept, you know, they'd jump on members of staff to be like, come on, tell me what's happening with this thing. And the staff were like, oh, God, they're just so needy. I don't have the time. And, you know, it's just like, gosh, just a bit of controlled communication 
would really change this prison dramatically. It's building a team around that person, isn't it? You have to bring all the departments, whether that's officers, healthcare, the chaplaincy team, social workers, everyone bring them around and say, this is what's going on. It might not be the answer that you want. It might be really traumatic, but we're all here to support you. And at least you know. And if you know, then you can cope with that and you can move forward. And it's yeah. multi-agency working, yeah. isn't it? Which is which time and time again comes up mm-hmm. as being, you know, one of the key issues in most things that go that, that go wrong. You know, you look at any serious case reviews, multi-agency working is usually in there in some form. Um it's it's about everyone coming together and, and playing their part and then communicating that back. And I think we see a lot of reacting um in custody. It's a lot of reacting to things that happen and and it's about, I think, us all trying to work together before there's something to react to. But it is, it's difficult. It is, it is hard, and I understand that. Mm. Um, I think everyone's sort of still working on and trying to understand what the best way is to Yeah, to and do communication that. is one of the hardest things, isn't mm-hmm. it? In every organisation, every institution, it's just something that needs to be worked on all the time. And this idea of having social workers in prisons came from Lord Farmer's review, didn't yes, it? it did, yeah. So I guess... That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen because it is a recommendation. And we all know that we these reports get written, recommendations get written, and then you have to fight tooth and nail, usually over decades, in order to try and get the government to implement the things that they say mm, would be yeah. a good idea. So will a report be written that people will be able to, or I'll be able to see at the end of it? Yeah. There's an interim report um, on our about our project and sort of the findings at the halfway point, which mm-hmm. was, which was uh, done... Last summer? Yeah, around June. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that was put out last summer and there will be another one sort of at the end. Well, listen, it's been great talking to you both. Thank you so much oh, and nice. good luck you. with it. I'll be rooting for you in December. Thank you. Um, and let us know if we can help in any way at all. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.